Good morning, my name is Brad and I'm part of the staff team here at our Attridge site of Forest Grove Community Church. Uh, I've been serving here for about five and a half years and before I was here, I was serving in Lloyd Minster. And during my time in Lloyd Minster, I had the opportunity to take five weeks to, uh, to spend in Africa. And uh, so at the time, our children, Seth was two, Emmy was one. Great time to travel halfway across the world for five weeks. Um, and, but we did. We, we bundled them all up. So I got a picture of us here uh, at the airport just before we left. Uh, funny story. Uh, we were living in Lloydminster. We drove to Calgary to the airport um, and got dropped off at the airport. And we just a few minutes after this picture was taken, we went through the big sliding doors that opened up. And Seth, our two, two at the time, looked around and said, Oh, Daddy, this Africa? Little did he know that we still had 48 hours of travel, including 24 hours on airplanes, before we would land in our final destination. But it was a great opportunity we had, and so uh, Christine and the kids stayed with some friends of ours in South Africa while I spent a couple of weeks touring through Tanzania and Uganda. And uh, while there, I was able to uh, see some of our partner organizations that we were partnered with in our church in Lloyd Minster. And I was able to see what they were doing, I was able to encourage them, I was able to bring back reports of what was going on. And at the end of that time uh, of touring around, I came back to South Africa, and we had two weeks as a family to travel around Africa. And uh, it was an exciting time. If you know our family, we love, uh, even at that age, our kids have loved just learning about animals and seeing different kinds of animals. And so we had some great opportunities to see the vast creativity of our God. And so uh, here's us for a picnic. Uh, as a father, I didn't always pick the best picnic. Spots. Uh, we were in a lion area, but uh, hey. Uh, we also uh, enjoy, enjoyed traveling around. Uh, sometimes we were delayed by various wildlife who also wanted to share the road with us. Uh, but one of the animals that I saw while there is a kudu deer, a picture of a kudu deer. And I just couldn't help but when I looked at this, but just marvel at the creativity of God. And so the kudu, as you can see here, has these antlers that just corkscrew up. And, and, and they end up with these massive corkscrew-style antlers. And, and I was absolutely fascinated by that. So when we got back, we did some time reading about them and learning about kudu deer. And as I learned about kudu deer, I learned that they are similar in some ways to the deer family that we have here in Canada. And so if you think of our deer, even our elk and our moose, during the mating season, they fight for access to the females. And so you may have seen pictures of deer or elk, and they just come running at each other full force and just clash in order to prove who is the dominant, uh, dominant buck. And so the kudu deer will do the same type of thing. And you may have heard stories or even seen pictures from when elk or moose or deer do this. Sometimes they actually get their antlers locked together and they can't get them apart. Well, one of the crazy things about kudu deer is with these really weird corkscrew antlers is when they fight, as the males fight, as the bucks fight, they actually can get tangled up with one another. And so before we go to this next picture, here's my, my uh, disclaimer, my warning. The following image you're about to see uh, is a little disturbing. Uh, so if you don't like that kind of thing, you can close your eyes. It'll just be up here for a couple seconds. But here's two bucks who've actually got their antlers so tangled up they couldn't get them apart. And this happens there. And when this happens, they get so tangled up with one another from their fighting that they end up both starving because they can't get the food anymore. Get that picture off the screen now. For those who had your eyes closed, you can open them. It's safe. 
As I began to prepare for the sermon today, that story, that image came to mind of how tangled up these bucks came in their arguments. And we're going to come back to that image in a little bit. But first, we're going to kind of look at this passage from Nehemiah. So for those who are visiting with us today, for those who are newer here, if you've missed a couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, to give you, just kind of get you caught up to where we're at, uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And he noticed the disrepair of the walls of Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem had been knocked down. They were in disrepair. And he decides that he needs to rebuild these walls. And he gets permission and he gets the supplies. Uh, In the the second chapter, we read about how he he, uh, took the administrative details of getting everybody where they needed to be and doing all of what needed to be done so they could rebuild these walls. And last week, uh, Pastor Bruce led us through chapters 4 and chapter 6. And in chapters 4 and 6, we begin to see the opposition and the distraction that Nehemiah faces as he's rebuilding these walls. And in those two chapters, in chapter 4 and 6, we see that this primarily comes from three characters, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And we spent a lot of time last week just looking at the various ways that they actually were causing distraction and opposition. They did everything in their power to stop the construction on these walls. They did everything in their power that they could do. And so they tried everything from uh, opposing things, from, from uh, threatening attacks. They tried to distract Nehemiah. They, they did what they could. And in every case, Nehemiah's leadership allowed him to come up with a solution and the work on the walls continued. But as we look at chapter 5, we see that he's now going to encounter the most difficult and intense type of opposition. The most intense type of of concern or problem that leaders face, and that is when the conflict comes from within and not without. Up until now, all this conflict that he's he's faced has come from outside the Jewish nation. It's come from outsiders trying to stop them. And they were rallying together as a nation to fight against it. But in chapter 5, we see that the, the conflict is coming from within. The work is stopped because of strife among God's people. The enemy could not stop the work of God by direct attack as was tried in chapters 4 and 6, but the work does stop when God's people were no longer unified or working together. So we go to the text. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Nehemiah. We're in chapter 5. I'm going to read the first five verses. It says, About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we've mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy. And our children are just like theirs, yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. So here's what's going on. Poverty has come in and is afflicting the Jewish nation. And the poverty is coming from a variety of different places. Some of the poverty uh, uh, historians have said is coming from the fact that people actually quit their jobs and have moved away from what they were doing to sustain their families in order to commit themselves to working on the wall. 
We also read about a famine that was happening at the time. And through the famine, there's both a scarcity of food and the food that was available, the prices of which were going up and up and up. So because of this poverty that they were facing, they were ending up having to mortgage their land just in order to put food on the table. In order to care for their families, they had to mortgage the land, this one possession that they still had. And then it came time for taxes to be due on the land, and they had no money to pay these taxes. And their land had already been mortgaged. So they went to their fellow Jews, and they, they borrowed money. They got loans from their fellow Jews, from the wealthy Jews that were living in the area. Now, a few things about the culture at the time that are important for us to keep in mind here, to remind ourselves of. There was nothing wrong with a Jew going to a fellow Jew and, and asking for a loan. That was part of their culture. They could do that. But in their culture, it was clearly laid out, even in the laws of the Jewish nation, it was clearly laid out that you do not charge interest when you loan money to a fellow Jew. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else, that they may earn interest, or that may earn interest. So it was fine for them to be giving loans, but they were charging interest which in their culture was not to be done. And if we look up the the actual word in this passage, it talks about the interest. It's actually a word that doesn't just describe interest, but it describes interest charged at an exorbitant rate. And so they're charging their fellow Jews an exorbitant amount of interest on these loans that they've got from them. And this is in direct violation to both the laws and the culture that they lived in. The rich people were taking advantage of the crisis they were in, to make more money for themselves and to make it at the burden of the poor. And because of the high interest on the loans, these people now had to actually sell their children into slavery in order to continue to support the rest of their family. It's totally spiraled out of control as they take advantage of their fellow countrymen. And so uh, even as we learn more about this, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to verse 8. And in verse 8, uh, Nehemiah, and we'll get here, is, is actually confronting uh, the nation about what he's seen. But he says, We are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who've had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. And so I was trying to figure out what exactly was going on in this. And, and as I read through some of the history of the time, my understanding is this, that, that when the nation as a whole went into captivity in Babylon, that was sort of one situation. But some of those people, in order to improve uh, their well-being, actually sold themselves into slavery to specific slave owners, to particular foreigners. And so now as the king releases them out of captivity to go back to Jerusalem, those people who've actually sold themselves into slavery still can't go because they actually have a debt to their slave owner. And so in his leadership, Nehemiah is going around and he's actually finding ways to pay for the freedom of these Jews who were unable to leave. And so he's saying, we've done everything in our power to be freeing these Jews from the slavery they were in, and now you, the Jewish nation, are just selling them right back into slavery. He says, how many times do we have to redeem them? How many times do we have to pay for their freedom? On the one hand, they're finding freedom from bondage under the leadership of Nehemiah just so that the wealthy Jews can sell them back into bondage once again. And so this challenge that he faces in this chapter, in a lot of ways, is far greater than all of the opposition that he's faced 
from the outside. Brian Bill states, it's much easier to conquer and subdue an enemy who attacks us than it is to forgive and restore a friend who hurts us. So on top of everything that's going on, we start to understand this thing where, where when it's a foreign outside party that the persecution is coming from, it's somehow easier to deal with when that same persecution comes from somebody who you thought was on your side. When that persecution comes from somebody who you thought had your back, who you thought was going to understand. You see, sin within the church divides the people. It jeopardizes the work and threatens judgment. In Psalm 55, uh, we we hear about this uh, worded in a little different way, in a poetic way. It says, It wasn't an enemy who taunted me. If it was my enemy, filled with pride and hatred, I could have endured it. I would have just run away. But it was you, my intimate friend, one like a brother to me. It was you, my advisor, the companion I walked with and worked with. We once had sweet fellowship with each other. We worshipped in unity as one, celebrating together with God's people. The psalmist is saying, if this kind of opposition had come from somebody else, I could have dealt with it. But it came from you, the person that we worshipped together. We studied together. We lived in unity together. It stings that much harder. This past Christmas, as Christine and I were driving back from Manitoba, she was reading to me from the memoirs of Brother Yun. Now, Brother Yun is a Chinese pastor who's been ministering in China and with the Chinese church for many years. And in his memoirs, he starts to outline the persecution that he faced on a regular basis. And as you read through what he endured for his faith, it's, it's mind-blowing, it's painful. It, it's hard to read at times. He talks about how his legs have been broken so many times that they've never really healed right anymore, and he has difficulty walking. He's been imprisoned for years on end. He's been kept without food and without water. He's been beaten uh, relentlessly. And yet any time he comes out of prison, the first thing he does is he goes out and he preaches some more. And so sometimes he's been released from prison. He also tells miraculous stories of how God released him, how God literally opened locked doors in front of him and he just walked out of jail, just as we read in New Testament times. And yet the first thing he does when he gets out is he starts preaching again and, and, and gets imprisoned again. And at one point he had an opportunity to come to, to Canada. And while he was in Canada, his, he was going to travel to a number of churches and just update them on the situation that was going on in China letting our Canadian churches know how they could pray better for him, letting us know how we could support them. And so as he was about to begin, he landed in Canada, he was about to begin his first speaking engagement, they came across an article that someone had written. And this article said that he had never endured any of the persecution he talked about, that he made it all up. The article stated that he was never really part of the church in China. The article said that he was doing all of this for his own glory, his own gain, and his own well-being. And he was devastated reading this article. And this is what he writes in his memoirs. He says, I couldn't understand how someone who had never met me could write such a nasty article. In China, Christians are persecuted with beatings and imprisonment. In the West, Christians are persecuted by the words of other Christians. This new kind of persecution was no easier than physical persecution in China. Just different. 
I want to read part of that again. He says, In the West, Christians are persecuted by the words of other Christians. And then he says this new kind of persecution is no easier to deal with than all of these beatings. Remember, this is a man that has spent the last decades being tortured and beaten and imprisoned. He said, it's no easier to hear this. Just different. Is there hurt, resentment, anger, and judgment in our church congregation because of the way we've treated each other? or hurt or resentment or anger or judgment that's, that's, that's starting to grow within our congregation because of the way that we've treated each other. In this case of the Jewish people that we're reading in this account, a lot of the, the conflict actually rises out of the issue of poverty. And so I ask, as a church, as an individual, I ask myself, have we brought hope to, our, to the poor, the lonely, the marginalized, and the vulnerable both those within our church community and those outside our walls? Or have I so overscheduled my work, my church life, my home and family life, that I no longer even have time to address the needs of the lonely, the marginalized, and the poor people that live among us? Or have I so overscheduled my life and become so centered on my family and my life and my church that I don't even see it anymore. Well, this is how Nehemiah responds. So he's heard all of this, and then he responds. It says in verse 6, When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. His first response to what he sees is anger. And I think sometimes historically, especially as an evangelical church, our anger often as a church is expressed outwards. We express it to other things outside of ourselves. We express, it to def- we express anger to defend our beliefs and our thoughts, our rights and our freedoms within our country. And it's been anger over the way that, that we've been treated. And yet, in this case, Nehemiah's anger is outwardly focused. It's not focused at what's happened to him. It's focused at what's happening to others. I find anger is a really tough emotion, especially when we're talking about it within the context of the church community. I read through passages in the New Testament, like Matthew 5, verse 22, and it says, But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. If you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And based on this verses and other similar verses in the New Testament, There are people that have ascertained or decided that anger in any form is always a sinful emotion. That anger is always wrong. That anger is always the wrong feeling or the wrong emotion. And yet I read other verses as well as I go through the New Testament. In James 1 verses 19 and 20, and this is a passage I've been uh, dwelling in and spending a lot of time in over the past six months to a year. It says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to get angry. I think it's interesting. He doesn't say, and whatever you do, don't get angry. He's saying that we are to be slow to get angry. And then he goes on to say, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. 
And as I read through various passages, I start to understand, at least I believe, that there's two kinds of anger. We have this human anger that's all about me. It's about the way I've been wronged, about the way I feel. It's very self-centered and inward-focused. And then there's a righteous anger, which is this anger that we see when people aren't being treated the way God wants them to be, pe- be treated, when people are being marginalized, when, people are, when there's injustice around us. In Ephesians 4, verse 26, we read, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Again, it's this idea that not necessarily the anger is wrong, but we don't want the anger to control us. Or in the NIV version, it says, In your anger, do not sin. I think there are times that we need, actually need a little bit more righteous anger within our church. I think we have to approach it very carefully. We have to make sure that it doesn't cause us to sin. But I think that there is injustice going on within our community, both within our church communities, within our community that we're placed in, within our world. There are injustices going on that should make us angry. And I think there are times myself when I look at things, I just look the other way. I just let things slide. I just don't even want to think about it. I think, what could I possibly do about it? And yet there are things going on that we just, there, there needs to be this idea of a righteous anger about what we see around us. We shouldn't be able to just tolerate it and move on. Even Jesus felt anger when he cleansed the temple. If you read that account, you can see that there is anger involved in what he's doing. Now, he doesn't sin in his actions. He's not controlled by his anger. But he didn't just walk in and ask people politely to move. I think it's interesting as we go back to the story of Nehemiah, it's interesting to me that, that with all of the opposition and frustration and persecution that he's faced over the past four or five chapters before this, that all came from the outside, he doesn't get angry. We don't have any account of him getting angry. The first time we see Nehemiah express anger is towards the Jewish people. He could somehow tolerate the oppression from outside the community. It was the oppression from inside that he could no longer put up with. And so I think we have to kind of look at, when we talk about anger, is where is our anger centered? What's that root of that anger? And what does it lead to? Does our anger come from our insecurity, our frustration, our self-centeredness? And when our anger comes from within, often the outlying effects of that anger is sin. When it's all focused on anger because of me, often what happens is our actions turn to sinful actions. But we also have to think of what's the result of the anger? What, how do I deal with the anger? What do I do when I feel that anger about what I'm seeing going on around me? When we go to verse 7, so he said, when I, heard their, uh, when I heard their comments, I was very angry. And then Nehemiah says, after thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. The first four words there, after thinking it over. He takes time to think it through. He takes time to collect his thoughts. He takes time to pray about it. In one of the translations it says, he pondered it over in his mind. That's not how I often respond to anger. When I get angry, I want to do something, I want to say something, and I want to say it now. And he takes time to collect his thoughts, to make a plan, and to determine what he's going to do next. And if we continue reading uh, in verse 7, he says, After thinking it over, I spoke out against the nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when when they borrow money. And then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. And so he gathers everybody together. He says, let's deal with this. This is a corporate problem. Let's deal with it corporately. And he gathers everybody together. And he calls them to repentance. 
And it's important for us to know that repentance is more than just forgiveness or confessing and asking for forgiveness. And as we read on in a second, we realize that Nehemiah didn't just say, you need to go before the people and apologize and say, I'm sorry, we've been taking advantage of you, we won't do this anymore. That would be nice, but there's more to it than that. For true reconciliation to happen, there has to be some restitution as well. And it also has plotting out a course that they're going to proceed from from there that's going to be in the right direction. And we read about this in verse 11. So he's gathered everybody together and he's addressing the crowds and he says, you must restore their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and homes to them this very day. And repay the interest you charged when you lent the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. See, part of the process for them to actually have reconciliation, he says, you got to make things right with them. You've you got to pay things back. We need to find a way forward that's a healthy way forward. And it's going to re- revolve making things right again with them. And so he calls them to this true idea of repentance, which includes restitution and allowing reconciliation within the group. We read about a similar situation in Matthew 18, or we have similar instruction in Matthew 18, where we're told... If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. And if the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. The person still refuses to listen? Then take your case to the church. And then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. We're given this set of steps. Start off by go one-on-one and talk to them. It is so much easier to talk about it with somebody else. It just is. I'll just talk, I don't really want to talk to them about it, I'm just going to complain to somebody else about it. It's not what we're supposed to do. Just go to the person and talk it over with them. And then he walks through these steps. But if they don't listen, then take it to this next step. And if it's still, then take it to this next step. And he kind of walks us through this process. But I think for a long time, I had a completely wrong understanding of this last sentence. He says, then, at the very end, you've done everything you can. And if you still won't listen to the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Just get rid of them. Toss them aside. Get them out of your community. They don't belong there. And then I start to think, these are Jesus' words. How did he treat the pagan and the tax collector? Did he push them off to the side and say, you don't belong here anymore, go away, we don't want you? Of course not. He loved on those people. He spent time with those people. And so I had to start trying to understand, okay, what is it talking about at that point? And I think this fall, as we went through our discipleship steps, we talked about creating community and how we desire to live in covenant community. And part of living in covenant community is we hold each other to the same level, and we hold each other accountable, and we all believe in the authority of Scripture, and we want to live our lives based on that. And he's saying, that person is no longer in covenant community with you. You can't hold them to the same standards that you have because they're not accepting that right now. But you still want to love on them. You still want to be involved in their lives. You still ultimately want to desire for them to move back into a healthy place in church community. It just looks different at that point. As we talked about this a bit in the sermon discussion elective, 
uh, just before we started this service, we were talking a bit about this, and, uh, and someone mentioned the fact that, that when he was talking to the disciples, many of them were pagans and corrupt tax collectors. And I thought that was a really, really insightful uh, piece of information to have. He's basically looking at the people and saying, and then at that point, treat the people like I treated you. That's what you do. At that point, treat the people like I treated you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we uh, tie things up here a bit. We started off with this image of these kudu deer. Don't worry, I'm not going to put it back up again. But I think that as I was reading through this, that image came to mind because as those, ku, those two kudu bucks fought, they fought and they fought, and in their fighting, they got to the point where they both ended up losing. They fought so hard that they both ended up paying with their lives. They got so tangled up with one another, they could no longer survive. And when we fight amongst ourselves, nobody wins. When there's fighting and conflict and hurt and frustration in the body of Christ, it doesn't matter on what side you're on, there's no winner. You never win those arguments, there's only losers, unless there's reconciliation. And not only do we lose as the individuals involved in the fight, but the church as a whole ends up losing out as well. So as we conclude, I have some questions I'd like you to ponder. Who am I tangled up with right now? Are there areas in my life that need reconciliation? Am I tangled up in conflict with someone in my family? Someone in my church? Someone in the community? What parts of my life Do I need to seek reconciliation? Where do I need to offer forgiveness? Where do I need to seek forgiveness? And do I truly believe that the conflicts, the arguments, the disconnect, the frustration, the hurt, the pain that I'm involved with, no matter how big or how small I think it is, do I truly believe that it is affecting the health and ministry of Forest Grove Community Church as a whole. Throughout the New Testament, we are called to live in unity with one another. Back to Nehemiah. He confronts the people. He tells them they need to make things right. He tells them they need to reconcile. He gives them a course of action they need to proceed along. And this is the response in verse 13. It says, The whole assembly responded, Amen. They praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. They went about and they made things right. They went about and they reconciled their relationships. They went about and they began to create unity in their midst once again. A pastor by the name of Brian Bill has said that there is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. There's a correlation between the effectiveness of our mission as a church, as individuals, as we go about being disciples of Jesus. There's a correlation between how effective that is and how we treat each other. We must be the church before we can build the church. 
We must care for one another before we can hope to reach our community for Christ.